If you have your uh, Bibles, we're going to open up to Colossians chapter 1. We're starting out there in Colossians chapter 1. So on Wednesday, we talked about, prayed through it this morning, um, the, uh, the importance of uh, investing in and equipping our young folks is, and um, to set them up, have a high view of marriage. This morning, um, our message is going to be moving into what it means and how we can maintain marriages that honor the Lord. So we're not focused at this point on being equipped to move into marriage. We're talking about those of us who are already married and the, uh, the challenges that that can um, present and what it would mean to move forward in a way that makes sure that we're trying to maintain a marriage that honors the Lord. Now, when we think about this, particularly this morning, I want to think about it in four different areas. And they're going to be those um, kinds of uh, areas that are encompassing. So we're not really talking about um, specifics like... Um, you know, how to lead your wife or what would it mean for you to submit to your husband and those kinds of things. Uh, those are definitely going to be within these principles, but four overarching principles. You could add more if you wanted to, but if we were to keep these four in mind, then we would be well on our way to maintaining a marriage that honors the Lord. And so I want to start in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, this is speaking about Jesus Christ and His preeminence above all things. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it says, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And so principle number one in maintaining a marriage that honors the Lord is that we must have as our primary motivation, our primary motivation in our marriages must be to glorify Jesus Christ. Did you know that your marriage was created for Him? We don't think about it that way. Most of the times we don't think about it that way. But the reality is, is that all things were created by Him and for Him. And we do know that the institution of marriage was created by God. I don't know uh, how often in the forefront of our minds that we think about that our specific marriage that we're in right now we were joined together by God's providential dealings in our lives, and that marriage was put together for the primary purpose that God might be glorified in your relationship with your spouse and what He's doing in and through you in that relationship. Now, it's important that we start here because if we start anywhere else, we'll find a motivation that will easily wax and wane and will not be strong enough to um, really to endure. 
So we've talked about some of this on Wednesday night, but you know, it's it's common and it should be. There's nothing I'm not demeaning this. It's common for people going into a marriage to be motivated, highly motivated to conform their marriage to God's plan. And so you have husbands who are very excited about leading and loving and learning their wives. And then you have wives who are very motivated to live in a way that is submissive under their husband's leadership. And a lot of that excitement is its not wrong, uh, obviously, But a lot of it is based on a naive notion that we have a special kind of love and a special kind of connection that most people just don't have. Not true. And it doesn't take long for you to figure that out. And by that, I'm not, um, again, diminishing those initial exciting days. Those are a blessing. As a matter of fact, if it weren't for those initial exciting days, it would be probably much more difficult um, for people to move toward marriage. But eventually it sets in that you are a sinner who has married another sinner. And that person who was once so funny in your life has become more obnoxious than entertaining with their jokes. Alright? You know what I'm saying when I say that? The person that was once... So fun and spontaneous has become irresponsible and unpredictable. And we could go on and on and on with those initial things that draw us in that really eventually um, fade as far as the, the luster of those kinds of things. Not because they're sinful, but just because they're not enduring. The other part of it is, as your life gets busier and busier and you take on more and more responsibilities, you move into a marriage, the Lord blesses you with children, you get, as a husband, you get plugged into a uh, career, other responsibilities, Wives, same thing, responsibilities with children and schooling and anything else that you might have. It just becomes so easy to let your marriage fall on the back burner and just sit stagnant. And what are we going to use or what is it that's going to be a lasting motivation for our marriages to grow? Well, if we look at Scripture and we understand marriage in light of and motivation in light of Scripture. By the way, this is not just motivation for marriage, it's motivation for anything that would honor the Lord. Then we must make our primary motivation to honor God. Because brothers and sisters, whether you keep this in the back of your mind or not, you were created for God's glory. Did you know that? That means God's purpose for creating you was that He might be glorified and honored through you. So what that means is marriage is not created primarily for our comfort, for our convenience, or even for our enjoyment. Now, 
those, all three of those things go along with a good marriage. But that's not primarily what it's meant to, to, to be created for. That's not primarily what it was created for. It was created for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so what that means, if we take that from some sort of a heady, nebulous thought into reality, it means that we were meant to function within our marriages in a way that, that is consistent with God's will and dependent on God's strength. Both of those things. Look in Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. You'll know this passage, although you probably haven't applied it to marriage. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Now I'm obviously coming here for the first half of the verse. The Lord has made all things for Himself. And that includes... Mine and your specific marriage. Okay? It's for Him. It's for His glory. It's for His honor. Romans chapter 11, this is a passage you'll know that we would apply here as well. And then we'll look at some of the marriage passages. Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Romans 11.36, this is speaking about Jesus Christ. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, what this means is, brothers and sisters, our marriage is really one of the primary places in daily life that we will express our worship and our devotion to the Lord. You will either function within the realm of your marriage in a way that's consistent with God's will and in a way that desires to exalt Him and glorify Him, or you will function in your marriage in a way that doesn't. It's one of the two. And what we'll find is, as we look, is that whenever you get to the marriage passages in Scripture, that this is always attached to it. So it would be helpful, you know, if we were to say, um, you know, if you want to maintain a marriage that honors the Lord, then what really needs to happen is, husbands, you, you need to double down on your efforts to uh, to love your wife and you need to double down on your efforts to understand and to lead your wife. And, and, and wives, you really need to put a heavy effort into uh, submitting to your husbands. And all that's biblical. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But the reality is, if you're sitting under the sound of my voice, you probably already know that those are the roles and responsibilities that are laid out in Ephesians, that are laid out in Colossians. The problem that we have so much of the time is not information, it's motivation. 
Uh, You could probably teach a class on what it would mean for your marriage to reflect God's idea and God's design for marriage. But I wonder how that class would go if it was strictly observation. And they were just watching you go through marriage day by day, day by day. I'm not ready to sign up for that. You're probably not either. And so the, the, the motivation to continue on and to continue to grow in these areas is really where we have to start. So in Ephesians chapter 6, I'm not going to turn here. I'm going to go to the Colossians 3 for actually reading. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 22, wives, you know this. It says, uh, for you to submit unto your husbands as unto who? The Lord. That's attaching that God's, your, your allegiance to God and your allegiance to God's glory and honor is attached to how you function in your marriage. Husbands, love your wives the way that Christ loved the church. It means you've been given a job. We've been given a job, husbands, to reflect the, the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ toward our wives to the glory of God. Now look how this comes up in Colossians chapter 3. Turn back there to Colossians chapter 3, a couple of chapters over from where we were. Colossians chapter 3, I want to start in uh, verse 17. Colossians 3 verse 17 says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Now, this is a parallel passage to that Ephesians 6, but essentially he's laying out responsibilities for what it means to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. And he gives responsibilities to wives, to husbands, to children, to servants or to workers. And there's an overarching theme that he attaches to all of these roles. And that is whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Now, here's what that means, just in plain language. Husbands, as you seek to love your wife and to not be bitter against your wife, that, now this seems a little idealistic, but it's not. If this is true, whether or not you decide to put effort into that says a lot more about your allegiance to God than it does your allegiance to your wife. Wives, however you decide 
to relate to your husband in the whole area of submission. That says a lot more about your relationship with the Lord than it does your relationship with your husband. Children the same way, servants the same way. Paul would go on in Colossians again in verses uh, 23 to 25 of chapter 3 to just drive this thing home, knowing that of the Lord, verse 24, you shall receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Tying our marriage roles and responsibilities back to our service to Jesus Christ. One of the problems that we have in the Christian life is that we compartmentalize things and we detach things really from the power source or the main motive of where they ought to be. There is nothing that takes place outside of the notice of God. Did you know that? There is nothing that takes place outside of God's primary purpose for you in conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. That's an all-encompassing work. That has to do with the way that you relate to your spouse, your parents, your children, your employee, your employers, your church member, every, everything in between. All of it is, is, is God's, I don't want to say platform, but all of it is, those are the areas where God is working His purposes in and through your life. And so to detach those as if they, you know, they're not really connected. And, you know, we worship God when we come to church and I love to sing the hymns. But when we get home, things are chaos and I don't really care a thing about the Lord. But I do like to worship Him on Sunday because the hymns really get me. Now, that's a shallow, inaccurate view of what it means to worship the Lord. We do worship the Lord as we come and we corporately sing and we receive the Word. But we also worship the Lord and really the rubber meets the road as we go home and we live off of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so here's the uh, here's the implication um, to this principle. The implication is that the primary reference point for ongoing steady growth in your marriage must be love for God and love for the glory of Jesus Christ. It has to be that. In other words, if it's not, your motivation will fade. Now, what would the, what would the opposite of this look like? Well, from a practical standpoint, it means that your growth as a husband or a wife cannot primarily be motivated by seasonal guilt. You know what I mean when I say that? You go through these seasons where you realize, you know, I'm just not measuring up to God's standard. I'm not measuring up to God's roles. Um, I'm not being the husband that I know I should be, the husband that I know I could be. And so you feel guilty about it. You work at it for about two weeks. And then you just go back to where you were. Now, you want to know why that doesn't work? Because that's about your glory, not God's glory. That's about you becoming the person you think you should be. Not you living a life that honors and glorifies the Lord. And make no mistake, we can use God 
to glorify ourselves all day long and not recognize that that's what we're doing. The Pharisees did it. And if we think we're incapable of that, uh, we are misunderstood. We've, we've got an understanding that needs to be realigned. Now, don't hear me say that guilt should never be part of it. You know, if you realize that you're not seeking to honor the Lord in your marriage, there's going to be some conviction that comes up. But that conviction should be leading to repentance and faith. And faith turns toward the Lord Jesus Christ in love and pursues Him. That's very different than you feeling guilty going home and through self-effort trying to hammer this thing out on your own only to discover in a week or two that you can't and then sliding back into where you were. That will never work. Never will work. It has to be about Christ and His glory, not you and your glory. Now, again, we have several passages we could go to to illustrate this point. 2 Corinthians 5.9, you've heard me use that one. And um, I think this uh, particular phrase is, is the way the ESV translates it, just because the KJV is kind of clumsy in bringing this across. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9 that he makes it his aim to please Christ. That has to be our motivation. My motivation cannot be that I will act in a way that corresponds to the behavior of my spouse. Or that I will act in a way that keeps things comfortable. And then you could, so forth and so on, come up with other, whatever other motivation you want to come up with. But I want to act in a way, I want to function in a way that pleases Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, the love of Christ constrains us. Okay, now here's that opposite of being constrained by guilt is being constrained by love. It's that I love Jesus Christ and that what He's done for me has impacted me in such a way that I want to please Him. I want to honor Him. I want to live my life to His glory because of what He's done for me. And the way that I want to do that, we're thinking in the confines of marriage, is by being the husband or the wife that He's called me to be, again, for His glory. Now sometimes we can miss this um, when we're looking at topical passages in Scripture. But you know, the teaching on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 is in the immediate context of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 1. Unto Him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. What's the context here? The context is that Christ would receive glory in the church Throughout all ages, world without end, and the way that that happens is as we walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now, everything else from chapter 4 down is going to be in the context of that. 
you could back up even in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, and it would be as far as um, the broader context of the book of Ephesians. Why is it that you've been chosen in Christ? Why is it that you've been redeemed? Why is it that you've been adopted? Why is it that you've been... Um, given uh, that you've been lavished with wisdom and why is it that Christ has quickened you from the dead and that he has united you to a church and that he's revealed the mystery of the gospel? Why is any of this stuff happening that you might be to the praise of his glory? That's the number one reason why this whole scheme of salvation has unfolded, not only in your life, but in the lives of all the redeemed people of God that we might be to the praise of His glory. And our marriage must exist within the confines of that. So that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether we eat or whether we drink or whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of who? You can say it. God. We do all to the glory of God. So, we would maintain a marriage that honors God, then our primary motivation in our marriages must be to glorify Christ. Secondly, a God honoring marriage, these are going to be, these are all going to come from be naturally um, working downhill from our first principle. A God-honoring marriage requires ongoing effort. Now that may seem obvious, but I can tell you it's not in practical terms. An ongoing marriage requires on... I'm sorry, a God-honoring marriage requires ongoing effort. Marriages cannot coast and grow at the same time. It doesn't work that way. Look in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter one, verse five. Peter says, and besides this, or and beside this, give all diligence, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and so forth and so on. What I really want out of this passage is this little phrase, giving all diligence. It means making every effort. And you may say, you know, Brother Lewis, that, that's that verse has nothing to do with marriage. This is talking about personal growth. And I would argue that personal growth has everything to do with your marriage. That's the last point that we're going to make. Making every effort. And, and make sure you understand it's making every effort toward the personal responsibilities God has given you. 
remember a story one time. It's a, it's a funny story. It's a sad story at the same time, and it illustrates the point. Um, um, you know, our, a lot of folks in our circles are, are in the habit of having a tool shower for um, men who are getting ready to get married. Uh, this was not at our church, um, but I was hearing a story about one. And, and during those tool showers, typically the men will give some kind of advice or encouragement or, or something like that. And I heard about one where a, a man was um, talking about the diligent effort and hard work he put into his marriage that just never really took root. And uh, the last thing that he, he said about that was uh, as he expressed just his discouragement in the fact that he never could teach his wife to say, I'm sorry. You can put a lot of effort in the wrong areas. Okay? So when I say making every effort, I don't mean making every effort to rework your spouse. I mean making every effort to fulfill the responsibilities and roles that the Lord has called you to, whether your spouse ever makes an inch of progress or not. And that's what Scripture is referring to. Now, we would hope, obviously, that progress would be made on both ends, but just so you understand, this ongoing effort that I'm talking about this ongoing effort is personal effort on your personal roles and responsibilities. Look in Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, let me say this, the opposite of a marriage that, is, that has, uh, where, where spouses are putting in ongoing effort, you know, the opposite of putting forth effort is just laziness, slothfulness. There's no, real, there's no other word for it. You're either going to be actively putting in effort or you're just going to be lazy as it, as it relates to your marriage and as it relates to the things that you need to be pursuing. It's one of the two. Now look in Proverbs 24. It's a great picture here. Verse 30. It says, I went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns. Nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. Then I saw and considered it well. I looked upon it and received instruction. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that travaileth and that want as an armed man. I'm sorry, that traveleth, and thy want is an armed man. Now, here's what he's saying. I gained understanding from looking at this field. And his understanding isn't just reserved for people who have fields. Okay? He says, I looked, and the slothful man's vineyard 
was just a mess. Well, brothers and sisters, the slothful man's marriage is a mess too. The slothful woman's marriage is a mess too. I've said this before, but as far as counseling goes, the number one population that I see, and it's no surprise to you, most counselors would say this is the case. The number one population is marriage. And most of the marriages that I see, the husband and the wife really have a hard time figuring out how they got to where they were. It just, it, it, it just, it's almost like it just slipped up on them. Most of it is not the result of malicious hatred. Honestly, most of it is the result of two people who were slothful in their marriage relationship long enough for it to catch up to them and they're coming to get help. That's typically the way it works. Now, you can, you can and you should be doing a little bit of self-examination, if not during this hour later, it would probably be better if you did it later, on the areas in your life where slothfulness may have taken root. But I want you to be careful because not only does the slothful man or woman allow things to just decay, but look at Proverbs chapter 26, verse 13. Proverbs 26, 13. The slothful man saith, there is a lion in the way, a lion in the streets. Now this may seem like an odd verse to you, but what's being communicated here is that a slothful man will justify the most ridiculous excuses you've ever heard. Okay, so as we think about taking inventory into our own lives and into our own marriages, and as we pinpoint maybe some areas to where we haven't been putting forth effort, you better be careful that you don't allow yourself to come up with ridiculous excuses to justify your slothfulness. Well, this is just not my season. A lion in the street. A lion in the street. It's not your season to do what God's called you to do. And we could go on and on and on and on. The reality is, and we're going to hit this more in the, in the third point, the reality is, brothers and sisters, if you're married, then God has called you to make that relationship the highest priority as far as your earthly relationships go. And no matter what season of life you're in, that priority will always be the priority. doesn't mean that you neglect your children. It doesn't mean that you neglect other relationships. It means that you certainly don't neglect that relationship. Okay. So ongoing effort. Ongoing effort. Now, we can understand why that effort needs to be ongoing just by thinking about God's design that we would leave and cleave, that two would become one. We've talked about how this is something that happens as we make the marriage covenant, but that oneness also is something that grows. We grow in oneness with one another, or maybe I should say it this way, we grow in unity with one another. 
Um, and so if God's goal is that we would grow in oneness, that's going to require time together. That's going to require regular communication. Look in John chapter 15. John chapter 15. In John 15, verse 14, Jesus talking to his disciples says, he says here, ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. And then look at how, look at his explanation for him calling his disciples friends in verse 15. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. What's he saying here? I'm calling you friends because I have communicated and I have revealed all things that I know of the Father. Here's the point I want to make, and we could go to other passages for this. Communication is a prerequisite. Revelation is a prerequisite to a growing friendship. I cannot grow closer to you if I don't know anything about you. And you can't grow closer to me if I don't know anything, if you don't know anything about me. And the God-given avenue for us to know things about each other is our words. We talk. Brother Davis mentioned it in his prayer. It's not a one-time thing. We change. Seasons change, preferences change, feelings change, so forth and so on. And the way we keep one another up to date, as far as unity goes, is that we speak and communicate with one another on a regular basis. So regular communication requires ongoing effort. Secondly, regularly resolving conflict in your marriage. Regularly resolving conflict in your marriage. I know this for sure. Ten out of ten marriages have conflict. Every single marriage in this church has conflict. I know that. There's not one single exception. And so that being the case, your marriage is either going to have a lot of forgiveness or a lot of bitterness. One of the two. You're either going to work through that conflict and resolve it, or you're going to be eaten up with bitterness over all the conflict and all the hurt that you've accumulated over the years. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, we could, we could go, you know, we go to Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32. We could go to all kinds of places. Hebrews chapter 12 is one of those, one of those passages on, on bitterness that hits it in a light that we might not think about on a regular basis. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. As far as conflict resolution goes, Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. 
looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. So he says, follow peace or pursue peace. That means you're going after it. And then he's saying, be careful and do not let any root of bitterness spring up in your heart. Because if you do, many will be defiled. Now, now the, the meaning of this passage is not, don't let bitterness spring up because there are a lot of people who deal with bitterness. The meaning is, don't let bitterness spring up and take root in your heart because your bitterness will defile many. Understand what I mean when I say that? It's about your bitterness. It's not about, um, you know, bitters anonymous, you know, where we can all get together with other bitter people and feel better about the fact that we're not the only bitter person. That's not what this is about. It's saying that if you cultivate a root of bitterness and it takes root in your heart, that it will inevitably defile or contaminate those who are around you. Now, one way that that could happen, uh, Proverbs, I'm not going to turn here, but Proverbs 22, 24 through 25 says, Do not make friends with an angry man, lest you learn his ways. Lest you learn his ways. One possibility is that those that you love will view your sin habit as being normal and will adopt that as a habitual lifestyle. Now, wouldn't that be something? You ever seen that? Of course you have. You've seen that. It's what the world calls DNA, and it's not DNA. It's just learned behavior. You've seen the way that your parents or those who are around you deal with things, and you they're normal to you. That's all you've ever known. Well, Hebrews is saying you better be careful. How do you how is it that you uproot that bitterness? And again, a lot could be said about this. But you deal with your bitterness through forgiveness. Which according to Luke 17 means at least five things. Number one, in order for you to forgive, a sin must have occurred. So we're not talking about preferences. We all have different preferences. Um, things that God is not, things that wouldn't offend God, they have more to do with just you being different than they do you being sinful. I think maybe it was Elizabeth Elliot that said this. Somebody said this, but if you were a carbon copy of your spouse, one of you would be unnecessary. So we're not talking about those kinds of things. We're talking about real sin that's offensive to God. And then once that sin occurs, again, if you're in Luke 17, 1 through 10, you'll see these five, then a confrontation needs to take place. And when I say a confrontation, I don't mean you put on your boxing gloves and go at it. I just mean you, you, you care enough to confront your spouse with their Sin with the offense that they've committed. I've heard another man call this a instead of confronting, he calls it care fronting. I don't really use that terminology, but I do like the way it uh, conveys it. You're doing it because you care about your spouse, not because you're trying to get one over on them. 
Third, there needs to be a confession on the offender's side, repentance, and then forgiveness. And forgiveness is at least these three promises. I'm not going to punish you or treat you in a way that is in light of the sin you just committed. We're going to put that away. I'm not going to gossip with other people about this sin, and I'm not going to allow myself to sit around and dwell on this sin and let it marinate in my head. Now that might sound a little bit little formulaic, and um, I will say that it's not as easy as going one, two, three, four, five. But I will say forgiveness is possible for any Christian, particularly within your marriage. There are some good resources that unpack this. But the goal of forgiveness is always reconciliation. And so you can, maybe you maybe you could think of something now. Thinking back on offenses that you've endured, things that made you upset. And if you think about them long enough, you can get yourself worked up as if they just happened. Anybody ever experienced that? Everybody does, if you think about it long enough. That's what it, that's called letting bitterness take root. You can treat people in light of actions that they committed 50 years ago. Well, listen, it requires ongoing effort to forgive and to stay committed to that forgiveness, but it has to be there. We could go on with other, other things, but effort must be there. Third, For as us personally, a God-honoring marriage requires ongoing sacrifice. God-honoring marriage not only requires ongoing effort, it's going to require ongoing sacrifice. If you're going to prioritize anything, it requires sacrifice. If you're going to prioritize being in the house of God on Sunday mornings, Sunday afternoons and Wednesdays, you're going to have to make sacrifices in order to make that happen. Okay, that's just the way that works. And so, if you're going to if you're going to prioritize your marriage relationship, then you're going to have to be intentional about redirecting and focusing your efforts in the right areas. And so, whenever we think about priorities, the question is not are you busy? You know, I've never really talked to anyone who doesn't think they're just too busy. I think that about myself, just so you know I'm not making light of that. We're busy folks. We live in a culture where it's easy to get busy. If you, if you love and, and care about anything, it's easy to get very busy. You can find yourselves, you can find yourself being drawn to good interest and you can find yourself being drawn to good things and, and we have got to put something into place to help prioritize. Even if that's other people in our lives that help us prioritize. Um, I, d- I had to do this this weekend. Um, I was, um, um, on Friday, I was invited to to, to move into a, a track in school of uh, taking on a Greek or a Hebrew um, um, 
route of, of, of learning those disciplines. And um, I've enjoyed school. I've done well in school. Um, I'm getting close to the end of my course load. And I thought, man, that would be great. That would be very helpful. Greek, that's just what I need. Must be God's providence. I'm going through John right now. Greek would fit right in. How many times this month have I told you I'm busy? Please pray. Several. You think what I need right now is to try to start learning Greek? Would it be a blessing? In the right context it would, but this is probably not the right context. You want to know who wasn't thinking about that? Me. And so as I was talking to uh, talking to one of my teachers, I said, you know what, let me, let me pray about this and let me talk to my wife about this. And, and, uh, and so Abby just kindly but very clearly said, this is probably not the right time. You've talked about how busy you are and how difficult it's been for you to get your obligations you already have nailed down. This is probably not the right time. And you know what? She's right. I don't like that she's right, but she is right. And so priorities are going to take sacrifice. Sacrificing things that you want to do in order to do the things that you need to do. And I can't tell you how many times um, as I was meeting with students whenever I was a counselor at Northeast and they would come in and they were having trouble with school and they were this, that, and the other, and it was almost always a matter of priorities. And if I said it once, I said it a thousand times. Eventually, you're going to have to get to the place to where you start doing what you need to do, not what you want to do. That's the way it works in marriage as well. Now you've got to prioritize. So here's the question. If your call by the Lord is to leave and to cleave to your spouse, is that what you're doing? Now a couple of just helpful insights here. From a husband's end, the husband who does not intentionally prioritize cleaving to their wife will typically redirect that to cleaving to their jobs or to their work. That's typically how that works. You're going to cleave to something. And so if it's not your wife, if you're not being intentional about that, typically for husbands, it's going to be your, your job. It's going to be the work that you do. That's going to be what's always on your mind. Your plans, your goals, your dreams are all going to be centered around that. And the sacrifices that you make are typically being made in order to further what's going on there. When wives do not intentionally prioritize cleaving to their husbands, uh, they tend to cleave to their children. Their plans, goals, dreams are all centered around the kids. Sacrifices are all centered around the kids. And so maybe you see a little bit of that in in your, your own heart, maybe even in your own experience, I will um, be complete. I mean, I've said this kind of thing before, but I know for a fact that I could cleave to ministry and um, put my family below that in a split second and not think anything about it. And so I've had to intentionally build things into my schedule so that I don't do that. 
It's not because I want to sacrifice my family. It's because I know that in my heart I will sacrifice my family given the option if I don't have structures into place. If you don't think you'll do the same thing, I would invite you to wake up because you will. And so you need to be on guard. And I'm not talking about snapshots. We all go through seasons that are busier than others. I'm talking about more like a movie reel, a synopsis of what's, what your life looks like. Uh, not a given season or period of life. And so Luke 9.23, denying self. Philippians 2, 3 and 4, doing nothing out of pride or selfish ambition. Looking on the things of others more than our own. If we would live a life and cultivate a marriage, maintain a marriage that honors Christ, we must put on, put forth ongoing effort in making the necessary sacrifices. And then last, point number four, a God-honoring marriage requires ongoing spiritual growth. And we referenced that earlier. I don't know if you've thought about this, but if you haven't, it's worth thinking about. The depth of your walk with your spouse will never exceed the depth of your walk with Christ. It just won't. You will never walk closer with your spouse than you do with the Lord. And so, if your relationship with Christ is a pretty shallow relationship, you shouldn't be surprised if that's reflected in your relationship with your spouse. Um, where you are spiritually is going to have a direct correlation to where you are on a, ver- on a horizontal plane in your relationships there. So what would that mean as far as uh, uh, practically speaking? Well, sometimes we think about spiritual growth as being some kind of a fuzzy idea where you're not really sure what it would look like for somebody to grow spiritually, but you know, spiritual growth is it really shows up just in character development. I mean, you being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ just simply means that God wants your character to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. So Ephesians chapter 4 is a good place to start with that. Walking worthy of the calling wherewith you've been called. Seeking to grow in humility and meekness and patience and forbearance. As we're seeking to grow in those areas before the Lord, we're also uh, that that vertical component of us before God is going to bleed over into our horizontal relationships, us and our spouse, us and our children. Just to give you another illustration of this, look at First John one nine. First John one nine. You know this passage. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what I would say based off of a passage that most everybody here knows. If confession and repentance is not a regular part of your walk with God, then more than likely this shows up in one of two ways in your marriage. Number one, you overreact and are very harsh toward your spouse's sin. Or number two, 
you're dismissive and or defensive about your own sin. Why would I say that? Because brothers and sisters, if we aren't taking our sin seriously, or if we're turning a blind eye to our sin, and we aren't standing before God in humility, dealing with our personal sin before Him, it's going to be very easy for us to grow in self-righteousness. It's going to be very easy for us to become very harsh with others and their sin. And then secondly, if we're turning a blind eye to our sin as it, re- as it relates to the Lord, and we, are, we do not have a habit of regular confession and repentance before God, Lord help whoever tries to confront or correct you. Because you're going to be dismissive and you're going to be defensive. If you can't be humble enough before God to confess and acknowledge your sin, you certainly won't be humble enough before man to do the same thing. A God-honoring marriage requires ongoing spiritual growth. That's a necessity. What about this? We're going to wrap it up here. What about a marriage that reflects the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, 22? Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Wouldn't that be a wonderful marriage? I've told this is just a little insert here. It's it's uh, it's funny and kind of makes the point. I've told you about the guy that said he used to have all the fruits of the spirit and then he got married. <laughs> they all function in a relational plane so you know it's easy to think we got them all until we actually have to relate to somebody in 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 close proximity did you know that you will not have a marriage that is characterized by sacrificial love joy peace patience so forth and so on if you don't have a heart that's full of those things it doesn't just magically happen the character of your marriage will directly reflect the character of you and your spouse There's no mystery about that. We bring ourselves into the marriage and it is a reflection of what we bring into it. And so if ongoing personal spiritual growth is not a part or a priority, then we shouldn't be surprised if that's not what's being reflected in the marriage that the Lord or the marriage that we have cultivated. And so John 15 15 is where, I'm sorry, John 15, 5 is where we'll, we'll end. We've laid out a, a pretty high view of marriage this morning. It can be intimidating. The principles here are very practical principles as far as how they relate to your your relationship in real life. We've said that if your primary motivation is not the glory of God in your marriage, you will will not maintain the motivation to want to grow. We've said that a God-honoring marriage requires ongoing effort. And we've said a God-honoring marriage requires ongoing sacrifice and ongoing spiritual work or growth. And at this point, you might think, I won't have any time to do anything else. 
it's just overwhelming. I mean, from what you've laid out, I need 72 hours in a day to be able to honor the Lord in my marriage. And that's not true. What you need is to abide in Christ. And what you need is to recognize that if you've come to the conclusion that I can't do any of this, you're exactly right. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ and abiding in Him, you can't do any of it. But in Him, you can do all things. And He has called you to be the husband or wife that you've been called to be in Scripture, and He will empower you to be the husband or the wife that He's called you to be in your particular marriage. But He will only empower you to do that as you abide in Him. As you abide in His Word. As you abide in fellowship with Him. In dependent prayer with Him. As your agenda is conformed, or maybe I should say as His agenda becomes your agenda. It's like I said at the very beginning, sometimes we can get distracted with the details and we can miss the bigger point. The bigger point here is that if we're going to honor the Lord in our marriages, then we have to honor the Lord in our life. And John 15 tells us, John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that, in, he that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You have contrast. The one who's abiding in Christ is a very fruitful spouse and whatever other area of life you want to talk about. The one who is not abiding in Christ can do absolutely nothing. May God bless us to believe that. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we once again, we thank you for your word. It is a light unto our path. Um, Lord, I pray that you would um, take the principles of this message and that you would bless those of us who are married to, to meditate on these things, to uh, evaluate ourselves in light of these things, and to uh, seek to move forward, to, to um, uh, repent and to change and to grow in a way that would be honoring and glorifying to you. We thank you for marriage. We thank you for the blessing that it is. And we pray that we would handle the gift that you've given us in a way that would bring you glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.